Hello, TTB community. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each episode, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is Bob Domena, who is in the pursuit of blissfulness. <laughs> Thank you, Elliot. So today we have a very blissful guest, I guess you could say. So uh, Eric Weiner is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and speaker. His books, which I have read, uh, include The Geography of Bliss, The Geography of Genius, as well as the spiritual memoir, Man Seeks God, and his latest title, The Socrates Express. I actually have not read The Socrates Express. I'm, I, that one's like right up my alley. So I'm definitely <laughs> I know planning. Yeah, I definitely plan on picking that one up. So his books have been translated to more than 20 languages, um, and he is a former correspondent for NPR and a reporter for the New York Times. Essentially, this conversation stems from him being a war reporter, seeing sort of the most depressing aspects of humanity and wanting to seek out what makes cultures happy, what drives places to be happy, people to be happy. And he then goes on this global uh, journey to find that. He writes about it in his book, and we talk about it today. Awesome conversation. Uh, I don't know if we quite really solved awesome. happiness to a T, but we and learned no, a ton. There's no solving happiness. Bob. I guess Come on, you learned that. I guess that's what we learned. Uh, so, <laughs> so really, really awesome conversation today. Before we get into the podcast, though, the travel tip of the week is, and it is very related to the conversation, travel with no expectations. So don't get your hopes up too high that things are going to go perfectly. Travel with no expectations and just embrace the experience for yeah. what it is. On the flip side of that, tra don't travel with low expectations either, because right. any expectations will influence your perspective. Yes, no expectations and just enjoy your time for what you get to do with it. And I think that really can translate to a happy experience. Uh, before, we, before we start the show, check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be plan efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. 
You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Eric, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here. We are very excited to have you on. We're, we've actually been back and forth with you a few a few weeks now, I guess, maybe even a few months now. Um, I got to say, this conversation is really exciting to me. I'm sure it's exciting to Bob, but my background in geography, my background in landscape architecture, and your whole, uh, I guess the book we're fo focusing on is the geography of bliss, and it's all about happiness and which countries kind of identify happiness as a priority and before we get into the book can you talk a little bit about some of your other books and what led you to writing this one well this was actually my first book um oh. and I've, I've written three others since and um, okay working on yet another as we speak when we get off this interview i'm going to get back to the writing but um, I'll give you the condensed version of the story, which is, you know, for most of my career, I was a journalist. I was a kind of a, a foreign, I was a foreign correspondent, a bit of a war correspondent working for NPR. And it was a great job in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I covered Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you know, was based in in India and in Jerusalem and Tokyo. Uh, I almost a perfect job for me for me but not quite and what was missing i think was a couple things one was um this sense of of really conveying what a place is like you know i would go off to afghanistan for two weeks buy all my stories and then my friends from back home would email me and say heard your stories on npr from kabul what's it really like there and i wanted my reports and and what i produce as a as a journalist as a writer to convey what it's really like there you know, so there's a bit of a disconnect between journalism and and conveying the real sense of a place. And I think even the bigger thing that was bugging me was the negativity bias of journalism, that it focuses on what's wrong with the world, the least happy mm. people in the least happy places. So I thought one day, what if I traveled the world, you know, for a year or so, looking at not, you know, places where there's war and famine, but the, the happiest places, the happiest people, and and try to figure out like what you know, what's in the water in these places and can we bottle it? And I went to my editor at NPR. I said, you know, I want to take a year off and just, you know, my job when I will be the, the happiness correspondent. And he said, basically, you know, what have you been smoking? Uh, <laughs> and this is back when it was not legal to smoke such things, you know, so it was a problem. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book, you know, and I did. And, uh, and I was happy with it, but you know, it's, crap shot with books you never know what's how they're going to do and to my pleasant surprise it did very well as a new york times bestseller it's been translated to 24 25 languages um and uh in just a couple of weeks will be uh a tv series starring rain wilson of the office very fame. exciting it yeah. is I, I just met 
uh, Rain for the first time actually last. We had talked on the phone. I met him last night. He was in D.C. and we were chatting for a while. And uh, a very great guy. Uh, he's he's a celebrity, but he's a real person, and he's actually more serious than you would think, given the uh, character he played in The Office. He's like many comedians. He has a very serious side as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exciting. I've been looking forward to that. I, I saw that get promoted or I saw something maybe on social media a while ago before we actually uh, even agreed to have you on the show. Um, yeah, and, and... It's, it's it's exciting because, you know, uh, not many books. Uh, there's often interest in Hollywood, but it, to actually get something made because there's so much expense involved and commitment, uh, you know, it can take years and years, as it did in my case. But to finally see it on I'll say the big screen, but the small screen, it, it doesn't matter now. A screen somewhere. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. They're all the same. Yeah. Right. And so the book actually came out. I I realize this now because when Bob and I were talking about it, it felt like a new book, but it's from it's from, two, it's from 2008. 2008. And yeah. you might think, oh, well, that's dated. And I people ask me sometimes, like, what would I do differently if I were to write the book now? Not a heck of a lot. Yeah. You know, I actually think it's held up because uh, happiness levels don't, they don't move very easily. It's like a, a an ocean liner, you know, it takes a lot yes. to move it one way or another. It takes a lot to make uh, an unhappy country happy. It takes a lot to make a happy country unhappy. Um, I'll give you an example is Iceland. Shortly after I did my reporting, my research in Iceland, uh, you know, as one of the happiest countries in the world. It was at the time. Then they suffer this massive economic upheaval, like almost an economic collapse, you know, it was in the news for a while. And I thought, oh, no, you know, <laughs> it's not happy anymore. And I emailed an Icelandic friend, this guy, Carl Blondell, who's a, a newspaper editor, great guy. And I said, Carl, like, what's going on in Iceland now since your economy's teetering on the verge of collapse? And he said, well, yeah, you know, people are suffering, people are struggling, but, you know, they're the rising to the occasion, they're helping each other out. Um, and overall, in fact, you know, the, the metrics showed in the surveys that Iceland only took a little dip in happiness during the crisis, and now they've bounced back, they're back in the top three. So in essence, the things that make a country happy are also like money in the bank were tough times and they, they what what makes you happy as a country will also we can talk about that will also help you uh survive the the tough times so around the same time this came out i was actually in my geography courses in undergrad and we had explored this notion of gross national happiness and the happiness index and it was it was somewhat novel at the time to look at countries like Iceland, like Denmark, like Bhutan, that were analyzing happiness instead of their gross domestic product to see how successful they were as a country. And using that metric, um, which I think I think it's easy to measure money because yes. it's it's hard numbers. We don't measure what matters. We measure what's easiest to measure in general. Yes. Yeah. And so this idea of a new initiative, not just in individual countries, but trying to make this a worldwide thing, uh, is it's slow to be adopted. And I think a lot of people have pushed back against it because it is subjective. Some of those surveys, especially for like Singapore, where they have some very strict rules, are 
individual responses about happiness accurate or are they just trying not to displease the government? Well, I mean, first of all, it is subjective, but I would say it cannot be any other way. It's like if I were to ask you, you know, are you in pain right now? And you were to say, yes, I'm in pain. Who would I to be saying, no, you're, you know, I don't see anything objectively wrong with you. You have no pain. Likewise with happiness. If you say you're happy, that's the ultimate measure of it because it is subjective. Now I could look at a country or a person's, you know, objective well-being. In other words, things like uh, parameters like uh, pollution levels, traffic jams, uh, health care, and money. And you could say, well, well, that country is happy because they have all these things going for it. Well, no, that country has things going for it, which probably will mean that people are happy, but not necessarily. It's not an exact correlation between these objective standards of living, such as the things I mentioned, like pollution, et cetera, uh, and how people feel. Um, so if you think about what really matters in your life, it's probably what cannot be measured objectively. Love, you know, you say mm-hmm. you're in love. I got to measure that. No, I can't measure that. You know, you say you're depressed. You know, doctors don't question that you say you feel depressed. Um, they can run some tests, but ultimately it's a self-diagnosis. And so, you know, I have a hard time sort of explaining this to people because they're like, well, isn't it subjective? Well, the people who study happiness, the psychologists, economists, and others, they call they don't call it happiness because that doesn't get you funding for grants. You know, you have to have a serious name. They call it SWB, subjective well-being. And, and okay. that's what it is. So um as far as you, it's a little bit different, you were talking about gross national happiness that started in Bhutan, the Himalayan mm-hmm. country, actually back in the 70s, but it picked up steam in the 90s and still is uh, it has slowed down. You're right. But they started this idea that, hey, you know, we're a developing country in the Himalayas. What if instead of instead of measuring our gauging our progress only by, you know, GDP or GNP, we were to factor in. Uh, gross national happiness and and have metrics and measure how people feel and measure the sort of uh, standards of living, uh, quality of life indicators and throw it into the mix. And other countries, UK and France have expressed, they're sort of flirted with the idea. Ironically, in the, the US, where we're like the country of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness have been slower to get on board with this. So, Eric, I want to talk about some of the happiest countries in the world and some of the ones that you visited, including Iceland. And before we get into it, I think there's an interesting theme between like Finland, Denmark, Iceland are according to CNN travel, the three happiest countries in the world Hmm. in that order. Um, But along that, maybe even just in the top 10, most of those countries have fairly, I don't want to say, um, undiverse populations but they're fairly consistent in terms of their culture i think in the book it was referred to as homogeneous populations yes yes and that's uh that is true but it's uh i would uh it's not how do i explain this japan uh, where i lived for a number of years yes is probably one of if not the most homogenous ethnically homogenous countries in the world but it's not one of the happiest um but uh you're right. You look at these Nordic countries, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, uh, other Nordic and Scandinavian countries are in the top of the mix, too. Um, 
so there are a couple things going on. One is you're right. They are not the most ethnically diverse in the world. We could talk about that in a second. They're also not warm places. I mean, yeah. not climactically warm. They're cold and dark. Yeah. And, you know, that's not the impression of paradise. Our impression of paradise, at least in the northern hemisphere, is someplace warm and sunny with palm trees and drinks with little umbrellas in them. And that's not the case. And, uh, you know, why is that? Well, one theory, which I do subscribe to, is what I call the get along together or die together theory, which is, you know, in a warm climate where your next meal sort of literally falls from the coconut tree, there's less of a, a need, an impetus to cooperate. But traditionally, I'm talking historically over centuries, yes. if you were living in Iceland or Finland or Denmark and it's cold and it's dark, there was a necessity to cooperate. And it is that cooperation, uh, those social relations, the social bond that I think I conclude really lies at the heart of happiness. And hmm. conditions are such in these countries and have been that they lend themselves to that. Now, there are other reasons. You know, there's the the social welfare system, the safety net that exists in these countries. Um, there's, especially in Iceland, a high level of creativity and emphasis on the arts and writing and music. Um, so there are there are kinds of reasons why they might be happier. Um, I guess my theory, and it's just a theory about ethnic um, diversity, is it is harder to make a an ethnically diverse country like, say, Brazil, uh, happy because they're just more inherent tensions in society. Okay. But, and this is kind of just, maybe it's wishful thinking, maybe not, that I think once, if you can pull it off in an ethnic, ethnically diverse country like Brazil, like the U.S., that you uh, perhaps achieve an even higher level of happiness because you've got more richer ingredients in the stew, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about that several times on the podcast is the idea that you know, this this concept of entropy in terms of ethnic diversity, that as time moves on, um, diversity will likely increase. But I think the overall pot, like if you imagine a, a cup of coffee as you pouring in cream, that's the classic example of entropy is that over time, that cream will gradually um, merge. Overpower, yeah. Yeah, merge and it'll and, become and... a new liquid. It'll become the the coffee or the latte and that it'll be more of a homogenous mixture, but it still started out two very separate liquids. Yes, uh, that's that's true. Um, and yeah, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, a lot of the the blissologists, as I call them, who study this, you know, they do bump, a, a get, bump up against uh, conclusions that don't necessarily fit our I ideas of the ideal society, you know? Yeah. Like we value diversity for the most part in the U.S. And, and and certainly lip service is given to it. But then you look at these happiest countries and you start to wonder, well, maybe diversity does not lead to happiness. But again, I use Japan and some other countries like that um, where they are very ethnically homogenous but not particularly happy. So I think they're, they're you know, Tolstoy said, uh, all happy families are alike, but unhappy ones are unhappy in their own way. Famously, at the beginning of Anna Karenina, mm -hmm. a famous quote, uh, I think with happiness, this is a bit different. I think all unhappy countries are unhappy for the same reason, but the the happy ones are happy for different reasons. Like there can be, you know, there's certain like necessary ingredients 
like if you're making gazpacho or something, you need tomatoes probably. I guess you can make it with cucumber. <laughs> you know, it's got to be cold. It shouldn't be hot. But there are different recipes um, and different recipes for happiness. But there's some, and we can talk about this, there's some ingredients in the happiness stew that are, you know, non-negotiable, like trust, for instance. That's yeah. That's one that if you don't have trust, you're not really going to have a happy place. Well, I think that's really interesting because when you were talking about those Nordic countries like Iceland, Finland, Denmark, I think Norway and Sweden are also in the top 10 as well. So you've got five very dark countries, which a lot of people think of the winter seasons where it is mostly dark all the time and it can right. get depressing. Um, but the the reliance on other members of your community to all have that trust and know that their role will be completed. Otherwise you will not have food for the winter or something will not be completed. And you have to have that trust with each individual in your community. And I think I, I like to put this theory out there that that is one of the reasons why they have those social options from their government is that they have that intrinsic trust and that intrinsic reliance and want to better the overall community. Yeah, and that's why higher tax rates are tolerated. You have to another word for taxes: trust that other people will use your money well. You know, yes, absolutely. So, um, it's sort of like you know they say that another word for the cloud is someone else's computer, right? When you put your data up there, yeah. So you'd have to trust that it's up in the cloud with Google, and they're not going to share it with others. And it's kind of the same thing with contributing taxes to a common pool, like. Are you going to use it well? That sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, for a number of reasons, these Nordic countries have topped the list. Um, But there are other things we can talk about, other sort of surprises, I would say, that I discovered in my travels. And, and, you know, just to be clear, I didn't just sit in an academic office at a university and study this. I went out there to some eight countries and and spent time in each one um, doing what, I guess, an anthropologist would call field research. and talking to people, but you know, the le- least happy countries in the world can be as instructive as the happiest. And there's really two categories of the least happy. One is kind of expected sub-Saharan African countries like Tanzania, et cetera, where uh, really the basic needs of people are largely not being met and life is a struggle and they're not happy. And that's kind of not surprising because this idea, this romantic, Western sort of European notion of the noble savage, happy, happy, poor people. That's not really true. The poorest people in the world are the least happy. But then you've got a whole other category that is surprising, which is former uh, Soviet republics, um, not just Ukraine, but all 15 of the former Soviet republics and the Eastern Bloc countries like Bulgaria, mm-hmm. Hungary, um, to some extent, the Czech Republic. Um, they also are like surprisingly unhappy. And in, you know, in the nineties, when they gained their freedom from under the Soviet umbrella, uh, they got wealthier, more democratic, but not happier. And that's, <clears throat> and to this day, you'll find their countries of the list, even though, you know, they're, they're wealthier than a lot of other places. So yeah, they, they, we can talk about that. There are different reasons, different theories. And one is, Like, who do you compare yourself to? Like, do you compare yourself to your neighbor? And is your neighbor, uh, you know, Moldova? Or is your 
your neighbor now France. And you're like, oh, I don't look so good compared to France, but I look good compared to Moldova. Well, is comparison, it, sorry, is comparing yourself or your country to another country, is that detrimental to happiness? Because I know as an individual, trying to compare yourself against other people's lives is never, is never ends up being good. Yeah, I would agree. I, would, I, I mean, I conclude that envy is toxic to happiness. And that's really, if you think about it, that's what social media is, is an envy producing machine. Yes, um, oh that's a great Look, way to put it. Everyone's so beautiful on Instagram. What's wrong with me? And oh my God, my friend has 10 million followers on Twitter and I've got like only six followers, you know? Well, um, isn't it, don't they have something that's literally called the highlight reel? And that's basically all social media is. It's the best yeah, parts of everybody's lives. Right. And it's, and, and you are, um, comparing yourself to them and, yes. and, uh, and envy is sort of the opposite of trust in a way. And in countries where like Moldova, one of the, the least happy countries in the world, which I visit and write about for my book, because I found it to be a bit of an enigma for those reasons I was talking about. Why isn't it happier? You know, they have an expression there, better to see your neighbors fail than yourself succeed. You know, they kind of get off on envy. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty dark. That um, is very I dark. I can tell you some Moldovan jokes if we had more time, but they all they all end up <laughs> with that same conclusion. Uh, and, um, and there's not a lot of trust and there's a lot of envy. So yeah, to the extent that you're comparing yourself for those reasons, um, and we compare ourselves to ourselves in a way, which can also be detrimental. For instance, they ask people, Hey, how much money would it take for you to be happier? And people don't say like twice as much or three times as much. They say typically about 20% more. And then when these people, in fact, do earn 20% more and they come back to them and say, how much, you know, are you happy now? Well, sort of, how much money would it take for you to be happier? Well, 20%. And it goes on and on. You know, it's called the hedonic hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is like we acclimate to actually both bad situations and good ones. With bad situations, it's kind of helpful. You know, we get used to them. But with good situations too, we're like, you know, it's why the third cheeseburger is not as good as the first or the second, you know, mm -hmm. it's a law of diminishing returns. And so you want to, you're on this treadmill that just keeps speeding up and you keep going faster. And I've heard that as a uh, lifestyle creep as well. Lifestyle creep sounds like someone you met at the gym. Who's weird. I don't know. <laughs> but, I don't know. This, I idea, this idea that as you produce, or as you have more income, you start to purchase things to kind of fill that gap of the added income. So you just purchase non-essential yeah. items and then you realize that you're not saving more with your earned income. But right. that you're running, you're, spending you're spending it. expands to fill the income provided. Yeah. And this is why when you you hear of people who, you know, make $10 million a year, but they're they're broke. And you think, well, that's just stupid. How could they be broke when they have $10 million a year in income? But as you get older and you start to earn more money, you realize, oh, you know, it's actually probably possible because, you know, um, I'm earning more than I was in my 20s, but I don't necessarily feel wealthier because uh, I buy more crap. And um, and then you have to maintain the crap and you have to yeah. buy new crap when your current crap becomes obsolete. So yeah. 
it's a crap cycle you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It, it, to, to sort of boil it all down and um i don't know come to a conclusion on what makes a country happy uh in it, when i read your book uh i guess and sort of paired it with uh like victor frankl's book uh like it comes down to purpose right so like the more purpose you feel the happier well, the you become and and then what gives you and provides the most purpose are the relationships you have. And so really like it's sort of it's purpose and then the best the best way to have purpose and feel purpose and feel the most fulfilled seems to be people and relationships. And so when you you pair those together, that sort of is the sum of happiness. And that's sort of what I kind of took away from it. And uh, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, response. I mean, I would, I sort of, I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but toward the end of the book, I sort of sum up in a in a tight paragraph, you know, what what you need that, you know, beaches are optional, but trust is not, for instance. Yeah. So the I reach a few conclusions uh, at the end, and I, I was a little cautious about tying it all up in too neat of a bow, although apparently readers like things tied up in bows to some <laughs> extent, but it just doesn't work. It's yeah. not that neat. But I would say that uh, trust is important. And and behind that really is this, if we take a step back, you know, when I started researching the book, I had this notion of sort of personal happiness. And I was in Bhutan talking to this man named Karma. So it's pretty cool when you meet a man named Karma. You figure yeah. you must have done something right in a previous lifetime to get that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Karma or a very cool guy. And he stopped me at one point and said, Eric, you keep talking about personal happiness. Like, what do you mean? Happiness is not personal. It's 100% relational. And I thought, okay, he's this like Buddhist, um, Bhutanese guy. He's exaggerating. It's not 100% relational. But as I did more research, traveled more, talked to more people, I thought, you know, maybe it is pretty darn close to 100% relational. And whether you define that as literally relations with other people, with family, with friends, with strangers you meet on the street, your relationship with your pets, your relationship with the environment, with the planet, with the universe. It's a different orientation than like my personal happiness. It's something I own. What he got me to do was to think of it as something that's in relation to others, other beings, and other entities. And that's a sort of fundamental shift in thinking. And then when you start to break that down, you're like, well, what's important for relations? Trust is, is hugely important. And you mentioned Viktor Frankl and his book, The Meaning, I think it's called The Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning, right. Classic book, a concentration camp survivor, which gives him incredible credentials to write such a book, an incredibly optimistic book. But this notion of meaning, it's sort of where I felt like the word happiness kind of fell short and still feels, I still feel it falls short, um, that... Uh, it, it's today when we use the word happiness, we tend to imply either you got lucky. In fact, the word happiness comes from an old Norse word, hap, H-A-P-P, -P, which means luck. The contemporary modern German word for happiness is gluck, which also means luck in German. So this idea that you got lucky um, or that it's a pleasurable experience, you know, but a meaningful life is different. A meaningful life is not always pleasurable. You can have a meaningful life it doesn't necessarily have 100% or even 70% pleasure in it. Um, so that's a, a shift in, in thinking. Um, and so there is an attempt now 
uh, among the blissologists, people studying this full time, to sort of get away from the word happiness and talk about uh, flourishing. Okay. Uh, there's a, a professor at University of Pennsylvania, sort of the, the father of positive psychology named Martin Seligman, and his big thing now is flourishing. And a flourishing life is one that has elements of pleasure, but also that that meaningful element that you talked about. Um, so, so yeah, that's I, I, I'm glad I chose the word bliss for my book, The Geography of Bliss, because that's... It's a little more transcendent, I think. It's a it's a good word. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Can, can I start to read some of my favorite quotes from your book and uh, and 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 sort of hear your response to what they mean uh, to you? And, sure, sure. Yeah, I I, I think uh, this this will be a fun little exercise. <laughs> um, okay, so the first one: instead of judging a society by its systems, why not judge it by its results? Where its citizens happy? And I guess I should say, so some of these we probably have covered to some extent in the first half hour of the conversation. Uh, sure. But yeah, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, read it again. Please. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, instead of judging a society by its systems, why not judge it by its results? Where its citizens happy? Yeah. Be, as I was saying earlier, it's kind of the bottom line is are you happy it's yeah. it's cutting through to that bottom line like okay you know we think democracy is better than totalitarianism and i do think it is but it should be the proof is in the pudding uh are people happier um there was a, a famous psychologist from the uh late 19th early 20th century william james you've probably heard of him one of the fathers of modern psychology and he said, truth is what works, which sounds like, whoa, you know, alternative facts, you know. No, he doesn't mean that you can say two plus two equals five, not that kind of truth, but but that if something is making people happier, then it's true. Like you, you maybe, I don't know if either of you are runners. Are you runners? Do you run? Okay. Yes. So you can look up all kinds of studies about how running you know, three miles a day, 20 miles a week, whatever will make you uh, fitter, less depressed, uh, thinner, happier. You don't need to know the physiology behind it, right? It, the okay. truth is what works is I run, it works. It's true for me. And so that's what I'm getting at in this, this quote here is rather than focusing on, uh, you know, why running you could study running in the physiology, not get off your chair and just be like, oh, running appears to be good for me. I got to study this. Or you can know nothing about the physiology or runner's high or endorphins and just go running. And you get more benefit, of course, than the person sitting in the chair who knows a lot about it. So that's sort of the essence of what, what I'm trying to convey there. Okay. Oh, yeah, I like it. All right. This this one uh, I love. And this is something that Elliot and I have both juggled with uh, trying to understand. Um, so... Happiness is low expectations. How do I reconcile that with my driving ambitions, which has served me so well in life or has it, or I'm sorry, how do I reconcile that with my driving ambitions, which has served me so well in life or has it? Yeah. Um, I would, I would modify that a little now with my, my increased age and wisdom. Uh, I would say happiness is no expectations as opposed to low expectations, a, a subtle distinction, but an important one. Low well, expectations is like tomorrow's not going to be very good. No expectations is, I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Let's see. Um, and you know, expectations uh -huh. <laughs> can get can get in the way of 
of happiness. I think really, and of, you know, this is a travel podcast, I'll say of traveling too. And when I give people advice about how to travel well, one of the things I always include is travel with no expectations. Like, like having this feeling that I'm going to go to the Dalmatian coast in Croatia, it is going to be awesome. It's going to be the best trip. Like, no, no, don't just go and see what happens. You know, you can be excited about it, but don't have that expectation. It's going to be the best trip of your life. You're setting yourself up for disappointments. So the trick is to have 100% invested in whatever you do, whatever activity, whatever trip you're taking, but have 0% invested in the result. And um, and so I, I, I think that's that's important. And this is a philosophy you see in Stoicism, you see it in the Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, this is conveyed there, 100% effort, it doesn't, you know, no expectations doesn't mean you're sitting on the couch, you know, channel surfing, you're doing things, but you're not tying your happiness to a particular result, an outcome. I am, I am so glad we talked about this, because in the 220 some episodes that we've done, well, I think this is probably one of the most valuable concepts that we've actually talked about for us and our listeners, because this is a travel podcast and it has been about not why you should go here and why you should do this. It is how to get out in the world and what travel can do for you and how it can make you either a better person or make you feel good. And Bob and I have had our own conversations both on and off the podcast about mm how to plan and how we do our trips. And Bob is very much a planner and I am very much a, I'm, I just need to know where I'm staying and how I'm getting there. And then everything else I'll figure out. How do you guys get along when you travel? Very well. Bob does all, <laughs> we do. Bob does all of the pre-planning and then I, I kind of get it. Well, while we're doing the things um, I'll, I'll navigate us around and then it's pretty much we do we do the things and it's, we're both happy that we're doing it. So you got a yin yang thing going on there. Very much so. You, you don't want to have two planners traveling together. No. Or no. two non-planners. Right, <laughs> never, exactly. Never get on the plane. Yeah. Exactly. And there is some there. trust there. There's trust there. There's trust that I know what Bob is going to do for the trip is going to be very good. Uh, he's going to place us where we need to be to see some of the good things. Um, but I think for everybody else, there's this idea that if you only have a set amount of time, especially for Americans, where we only get two to three weeks of vacation every year, we have to cram a lot in when we go some places. Those expectations are kind of set for us via social media, because mm. we see all of these beautiful photos. We're basically told that we should go here if we go to this country. And we have uh, this travel. I, I hate that. And that's, you know, sometimes I really wish I was born 100 years earlier in, in the sort of mm. the age of exploration still where you didn't know what to expect. I mean, this is why one of my philosophies, even if I'm traveling for work, I'm researching a chapter for a book, I'll read the history of a place. You know, you're, you're in Croatia now. I'll read the history of Croatia, definitely. <laughs> I will not read contemporary travelers' accounts of Croatia. And I will not look at too many Instagram photos of Croatia, probably not look at any. I want to experience it fresh. You know, the history, okay, I can't, there's a famous quote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. You know, yeah. and it's true. You can't, can't try, I can't travel back to Croatia of 1850, right? So I'll read the history, but I will not read like, you know, Bob's account of Croatia on his blog or, 
or a book on, you know, my journeys through contemporary Croatia. I don't want to be colored by someone else's impressions. You only have, you know, one chance to have first impressions. So mm -hmm. uh, I want to keep those fresh. Yeah. So I think in my travels, I haven't been able to voice it as we have in this conversation. But I think one of the reasons why I enjoy traveling so much is because I typically travel with no expectations, knowing that I want to go to these places and I want to experience them, but I have no idea. I, I don't often have my full itinerary planned out. And if I do, like if I know Bob's planning it out, I still have no expectations. I kind of know roughly what we're doing, but knowing that each day is going to be fun, um, and that those expectations, if I set them high and they're not great, that's one thing. But if I don't have any. And, I yeah, and I think in terms of planning, like a loose plan is fine, but you should e expect it to change. If it doesn't change, you're not traveling right, I would say. Um, uh, you know, if in a, a curious fact about travel writing and great travel writing is it's almost always about bad trips where things yeah. go wrong. In fact, there's a compilation, I think Granta put it out, called Bad Trips, uh, a double entendre about yeah. trips that have gone awry. There's a famous book uh, published a century ago called uh, The Worst Journey in the World. And it's about uh, this expedition to Antarctica by a British explorer, and everything went wrong. And uh, the title says it all. And it's a, a, become a classic of travel writing because it's, Things going wrong short of dying, I would say that's too wrong, but short of dying, um, that, you know, and overcoming those obstacles and still enjoying the trip, that's good. And also, as we tell the story, as we get further away from the bad, worst trip in the world, we tend to remember the good stuff and forget more of the bad stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I'm going to read one more. And then, sure. because I do want to save time to get into Bliss Tours and sure. the show. Okay. Um, so uh, the last one. Every culture has many more words to describe negative emotional states than positive ones. Part of the brain that, uh, well, let's just stop there. Let's stop there. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's good. It is true. It surprised me. Um, then that's true of, in almost every language, you know, that you, if you're, you could be depressed, blue, down in the dumps, uh, unhappy, uh, sad, anxious. I, I, I could go on and on. But to describe happy states of mind, we've got happiness, contentment, bliss few others maybe you got to dive into deep into the thesaurus and i thought well you know why is that is it we're like the inuit who have more words for snow than we do because they live in snow and they experience it more or do we experience more unhappiness so we have to describe it with a richer vocabulary or and this gets back to the word bliss you know this transcendent state if you're happy then you just know you're happy you don't need a lot of words to describe it. It's a transcendent state that doesn't require language. And uh, I, I, I like to think that's that's the case. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of the happiest countries of the world, they don't buy self-help books. They don't go on podcasts like this, dissecting happiness. They're just happy. <laughs> they're too busy being happy to talk about it. Yeah. So there is something, there's a kind of paradox in happiness that if you seek it directly, if you talk about it too much, you'll kill it. You know, mm -hmm. it's a fra fragile bird. You have to hold <laughs> lightly in your hands. So, yeah, I think that's a, the sort of optimistic conclusion I reached about that linguistic fact. 
and pretty- before before we transition to um the last segments of this i do want to kind of circle back to the beginning of the conversation and maybe talk about happiness as a whole and how happiness doesn't we touched on it but how happiness isn't just um buying new things will make you happy and sustain your happiness when you have life events like getting married or having children or if you buy a new house or a new car your happiness will increase for maybe a, a few days or a week and then it'll kind of reset back to where it was pre event pre purchase um so this idea that like buying material things will increase your happiness there's always a quote that you've never bought a jet ski cuz <laughs> you can buy happiness. Oh, okay. Well, I've never bought a jet ski. So <laughs> yeah, so there you uh, go. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. And I'm sure if I brought the jet ski, well, I'd be happy for 10 minutes. Right. I, I, yeah. yeah. Um I will say this. Um that you need money to survive. You need money, a certain amount of money to maintain a, a standard of living that makes happiness possible. So yeah, like being completely dirt poor is not going to make you happy, but it, it plateaus quickly. So once you achieve a it certain does. amount of money, it, it plateaus. And the more you get it, then we'll plateau again. But there've been many studies that show that it's not how much money you have, but what you spend it on. And there are two, spending it on stuff will give you the momentary hit of happiness. Spending it on experiences like travel gives you a bigger and longer lasting hit of happiness. Yeah, spending it on other people will also make you happier. Yes, uh, and so not the money per se, but what do you do with it? How do you spend it? Yeah, and I think that ties into Maslow's hierarchy, um, that psychological concept that you need those five things to feel happy. I mean, the two basic ones are your physiological needs: air, water, food, shelter, and then safety needs: personal security, like a house. Um, a community that you feel safe in. And then the three at the top are love and belonging, esteem. And then the top one is self-actualization. And the self-actualization is the one where once you hit that top tier, then you do feel that you feel like you're flourishing. You feel like you're in a state of bliss. Yeah. We get stuck stuck at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, Quite because, often. Yeah. What the, the problem is that it works at first for countries and people that more money you see your happiness go up as you get more things, more comfort. And so this thing that worked before, you're kind of wrongly, I think, assume it will keep working. And what happens is once you've achieved that base level of having your needs met, you've got to shift into other purpose, meaning self-actualization, whatever you want to call it, these bigger, bigger aspects of your life. Yeah. Let's get into how people can travel. Uh, to, to find happiness themselves. So uh, Bliss Tours, have you started Bliss Tours yet? Uh, or- I am launching it. This is an experiment and I'm inviting people to join me in the experiment. Uh, right. It's something I've always toyed around with. And uh, then I happen to have a friend who works for a, a travel company called Academic Travel Abroad who does all the logistics. Um, and they've worked with New York Times Journeys and Nat Geo Journeys, other places. And now they're working with people like myself, individuals, authors. And I thought like, okay, there's wine and cheese tours of France. Um, there's, you know, art tours, probably there, there's certain sort of specialty travel tours. There, there is not as far as, you know, happiness tours, which I thought maybe there should be. 
So we're trying this first, uh, October 15th to 21st, a seven-day, six-night trip to Iceland, one of my favorite countries, um, a manageable country. Uh, it's pretty easy to travel around. Um, oddly happy, given that it's so small, population like 370,000, the size of like mm -hmm. Cleveland, if that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and cold and dark, as we discussed. So the idea is, you know, this will be a group of 10, 20 people. And I'll be on the trip and we will look at Iceland through the lens of the science of happiness. So yeah, we will, we'll go to the lagoons, we'll go to the volcanoes, but you know, we'll do it with an eye to happiness. For instance, there's this notion of biophilia, which is a fancy word for nature makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. We'll explore that by going, you know, hiking, uh, in, in, in climbing volcanic mountains in Iceland. Uh, there's also a notion that creativity leads to greater happiness. Iceland is one of the most creative countries in the world. We will, um, you know, we'll look at street art in Iceland. We'll talk to writers and journalists, et cetera. Um, and there's also the connection between language and happiness. And Icelandic language is very unique. It's the closest to the old Viking language. And we will take a crash course in Icelandic and meet with an Icelandic linguist. So it's kind of unique that way. Um, sort of combining, yes, you're going to see Iceland, but you're going to see it through this lens. Um, I welcome people to go to the website, geoblisstours.com, geoblisstours.com, or my website, ericweinerbooks.com. And um, yeah, we're signing up people now. We're going to try it and then hopefully expand to uh, other happy countries and see how this goes. I love Two the things. idea. I yeah. do too. Um, one, have you have you talked with Florence Williams at all? She's a good friend. Is she? Uh, we've had her on the podcast. <laughs> I just saw her. I just saw her two days ago. She lives in Denver now. She's a yeah. good friend. She's part of a. She was part of a writers group we had going here in Washington D.C. Then she moved back to Colorado. I just saw her okay. two days ago. Uh, I was on one of her podcasts. I, she had me on as the stand-in for the urban guy who's never gets his hand dirty in nature <laughs> and uh she's the queen of uh, biophilia yes and the nature wait fix. yeah yeah wait you were on her three-part audio series i was i was yes the three-day uh, three yes. effect yeah. When I yeah i listened to that i, I listened to that i mean my, maybe a year ago but when you Palmer. started talking I was like, your voice sounds familiar. I'm like, maybe, you know, maybe it was from NPR, like, but your I, your voice sounds familiar. And that's what it's from. That's so I was funny. I was a stand-in. Like, and yeah. then she, took, she took me on as the guinea pig out <laughs> to Utah and did like stress tests on me and like see if I could get happier after three days in nature. And I was yeah. like, that, but she oh, took me man. glamping. We stayed in very nice tents. So, because yeah. I was like, yes. Um, oh, so, man. yes, Florence is uh, the queen of biophilia and all this. And, uh, and and there's there's, there's there's truth to it. Um, and yeah. all these we didn't really talk about this, but all these countries do have a connection to nature, and you do need that connection. It doesn't mean you need to live in rural Colorado, uh, you know, or go Just forest access. bathing all the time. Yeah, you, yeah, you can be near Central Park, you know, and go for walks in Central Park. Yeah, you know, it doesn't need to be wilderness. It just needs to be nature. It can be. Yeah. A building that has an atrium with lots of plants, for instance. Yep. Yeah, that's so. Awesome. It, your first tour, your first GeoBliss tour, mm -hmm. is there a limit to how many people can join? Uh, we're capping it, I believe, twenty-five. Uh, okay, because you get beyond that, it gets a bit unwieldy and less happy. Um, yes. <laughs> I think it's twenty-five, might be thirty, 
but I, I, I don't want it any more than that. Um, so you might want to well, book as, as you're listening to the rest of this. <laughs> Thank you guys. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I say, I thought, you know, should I describe it as an experiment or people are not going to want to sign up for an experiment. But then I thought, you know, the kind of travelers I want to join this trip are the Absolutely. experimental kind. So let's, let's do this. And uh, have you guys been to Iceland? I, no. I was scheduled to go to Iceland in Ju July of 2019. And I ended up, uh, one of my left lung collapsed randomly. It was a oh spontaneous pneumothorax. And so I was grounded wow. from flying for, I think, three weeks. And so I ended up having to cancel the whole trip. I was going to go with my mom and my sister. And so I still have it on my bucket list. Unfortunately, my mom passed away shortly after. Oh, I'm sorry. So I have I have her ashes and she will still be going with me whenever wow. I go. Well, I'm glad. I hope your lung has refilled. Um, it has very, very much so. Better you found out before than when you're on the airplane or something. Yes. Um, yeah. wow. Lungs increase happiness, I hear. Yes, lungs yeah. in two lungs, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah, yes. yeah, big yes. factor. Um, so yeah, so that's happening in the the TV show. If you want to talk about that, yes, yeah. definitely. Um, uh, why, why don't you throw a question my way about uh, about the show, and I'll I'll answer it. Okay, so so yeah, to kind of run run it back, and I know we discussed it a little bit in the beginning, but Rain Wilson is sort of taking the lead as the 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 star of the show. Is that how it's working? And for those yeah. who may not be familiar, Rain Wilson is Dwight on The Office. And if you haven't seen that show, I don't know. I can't help you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ray Wilson is like, this is like, he's done. I, I saw him just last night. Um, and uh, great guy. He's more than Dwight. He's like done all oh, those yeah. things. Yes. And I said to him, I said, Rain, like, you know, the geography of bliss is my Dwight. Like, no matter what I do, I'm never, I'm going to be known as the guy who wrote geography of bliss. I've written four other books, you know, and working on another one. He's like, yeah, it's okay. Love things. Um, so he's Dwight, but he's like incredibly serious. He's got this book out now called Soul Boom, which I recommend, uh, a sort of manifesto for why we need a spiritual revolution. He's a follower of the Baha'i faith. He's a deeply spiritual, philosophical guy. A lot of comedians are much deeper than you would yeah. think. And uh, and you know, when these producers approached me, said we want to turn Geography of Bliss into a TV show. They were looking around for someone, to be honest, with name recognition who could, you know, be a kind of Anthony Bourdain character to, to, to be fill in the place of me and travel around the world. And when they landed on Rain Wilson and he agreed, I was actually pretty excited because um, he has my sensibility. I've seen all the episodes. It, it premieres May eighteenth. Uh, okay. Was a co-producer, so I was involved in offering suggestions, sort of a consultant, basically. And I think it, they've really captured the spirit of the book. Um, they added awesome. a few countries I did not go to. They went to Ghana. Um, Ooh, okay. And uh, partly it's the geopolitics interfered. Um, they were going to go to Moldova, which I did go to, yeah. but it's in Putin's crosshairs. So they went to nearby yeah. Bulgaria, a country I don't write about, but I'm very familiar with and have been to. And uh, it was a great stand-in for Moldova. And so... Uh, it's actually smart television. Um, it's funny, but it's uh, thoughtful at the same time. Uh, it's beautifully shot. Um, and it's rain doing what I did, looking for the secret to happiness in these places. It has some of the science of happiness in it. And um, and he's awesome. And um, yeah, I'm hoping it brings uh, attention to the concept. More readers for my book, of course. But mm -hmm. um 
it, it it's pretty exciting because uh, it's odd. People are impressed when you've written a book, but they seem really impressed when the book's turned into a TV show. I don't know why that is. It's <laughs> like that's the medium that counts. It, it's the it's the access. The fact that someone someone that has access to uh, millions of viewers thinks that it is worth sharing. Yeah, and also you know reading's harder than watching a tv show that's that's, <laughs> that's the true. bottom line and also it um it brings it, it it has a different sensibility obviously if it's if it's television um but they they take their time they slow it down enough it's not like this fast paced you know like cnn cut 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 um that's they spend good. time on each scene that's something we haven't talked about one of my philosophies of travel is to loiter linger Slow uh, when I when I yeah, but when I plan a trip, you know, work or not work, I calculate how much time I lead, need and then generously calculate and then add 20, 25 percent. Never have regretted adding the extra time. Yeah. So um, so they took their time here in the conversations with people and the way things are shot. It's um, uh, and Peacock, NBC's streaming service premieres May 18th. They're dropping all five episodes and okay. uh, I recommend it. Nice, and, nice. I and, do have Peacock. I'm pumped. I am, right. I am too. Um, I I have seen the trailer for it, and it seems, and maybe you could give shed a little mm -hmm. bit more light on this, but that Rain is fairly open about his own, um, yeah. mental issues and how he's been coping yes. with it. That's an important point. And um, as I was a bit in my book, he's probably even more so. Um, I've also wrestled with depression and anxiety. Um, as he has, and he's open that he's had panic attacks, um, that he suffered from depression, even had suicidal ideations, had problems with addiction. Um, and he's he's very honest about that. And without like being this sort of treacly, you know, it's going to be all about me. Yeah. It's just the right amount of rain while also reminding us that it's about the place and the people where we are. But it makes him... Uh, I hope I, I came across in the book too, as a more sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, people, some people say to me like, Oh, you're unhappy. Why would I want to read an unhappy person's take on happy places? I'm like, wouldn't you want to read a book about food by a hungry person as opposed to someone who's <laughs> stuffed to the gills? So yeah, it's the absolutely. motivation and it's rain's motive. It was my motivation and it's rain Wilson's motivation as well. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, we do have one more segment, but before we get into that segment, I, I have one question that I wanted to ask earlier, but I think we, we moved around pretty quickly. Um, regarding Moldova and some of the unhappy countries, have you experienced individuals or like a general sense that those unhappy countries feel like happiness is a finite resource? And if one person is happy, that that could potentially take away from their happiness? Do we have time for a Moldovan joke? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we're down in hell. Okay. And uh, this guy, he's like a diplomat. He's getting a tour of uh, of hell. And um, and there's like this brimstone of fire. And, and these people are in this, this pot of like boiling water. And there are all these guards around to make sure they, they don't get in. And, and, uh, the devil's giving a tour and he's like this is where we keep the americans it's like oh okay it looks lots of guards i notice and then he's like over here we have uh the, the russians and they're in the fiery brimstone pot and they're boiling and they're 
they're suffering, but there are fewer guards. And and the diplomat who's getting the tour is like, oh, that's that's interesting. There are fewer guards. And it's like, and here it's where we keep the Moldovans. And it's the same brimstone and fire and boiling lava. People are suffering, but there are no guards. And the diplomat says, there, there are no guards, you know. You have no guards here. Why? He says, oh, don't worry. If one of them gets out, the others will pull, pull them back in. Uh, so that's all you need to know about Moldova and finite happiness. Um, wow. That uh, there's that sense of, you know, dragging people down with you. And yeah. it speaks for itself. Um, so, uh, yes, I think it is seen as a finite. I haven't told that joke in a while. That finite resource. <laughs> like and again, that someone else's success getting out of the yeah. boiling cauldron uh, hurts you. And I think social media, I experienced this myself, to be perfectly honest. You know, there's always a more successful author out there who's, you know, pegged at number one on the bestseller list. And, you know, I go through like, oh, why can't I be at number one like them, you know, and and, and this feeling that their success takes away from yours or their happiness takes away from yours. But if you think of happiness as an infinitely expanding pie, then you don't have that that feeling an infinitely expanding pie i like that yeah yeah all right uh eric are you ready for the rapid fire round to end this out oh my god you may have warned me about this remind me how this works <laughs> yeah so so we're going to ask we did not we did not warn you about it okay, on, good. on purpose right. uh, we have we have five questions lined up um okay. answer it's a rapid fire round, but you don't need to answer immediately. Um, but very quickly, before we do get into that, can you just tell us again, your website, your social media, you know, your book titles, where people can buy them, uh, anything you want to share related okay. to that? So my best known book is The Geography of Bliss, One Grum Search for the Happiest Places in the World. I've written three others, The Geography of Genius, Man Seeks God, and my most recent, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Find them at your local bookstore. Support them if you have to go to Amazon, fine, but local bookstore first. Right. Uh, my website is ericweinerbooks.com, Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R, all one word. The Iceland Tour, Geo Bliss Tours, Geo Bliss, B-L-I-S-S, Tours, all one word.com. October 15th to 21st, join me. I'm on social media. You guys are too. Eric underscore Weiner at Twitter. I do not have a blue check mark. Um, Eric Weiner books on Instagram. Um, find me out there and I should find you guys on social as well. Yep. Uh, that's it. Yep. I recommend right. the newsletter as well. I, I signed yes. up for that. The Atlas and, of Ideas every month. Um, I call it a dose of intelligent optimism. <laughs> okay. Uh, are right. we ready for the rapid fire lounge? Okay. Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. All right, uh, Eric, uh, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Curiosity. All right. Uh, what travel book or other has had the biggest influence on your life? It's kind of a travel book. It's kind of other. It's by um, Atalo Calvino. It was an Italian writer who's passed away, and the book is called Invisible Cities. And it is a work of fiction but it is not a novel. He imagines, I think it's 57 imaginary cities where the laws of physics and as we know them are all suspended, uh, a city that's made of dirt instead of oxygen, a city where people start over each day with time, he plays with time. It's very, very imaginative. 
And to me, it speaks to why I travel, which is it widens the range of possibilities. Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, my favorite book, period. It's wow. added to my list. Yeah, All that right. sounds awesome. It is. <clears throat> okay. Uh, what is one practical thing travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? No expectations. Don't have any expectations about your trip. Tied to that, don't overplan. Don't be an overplanner. Don't look at too many Instagram photos. Just go in there, tabula rasa, blank slate, uh, and allow yourself to be surprised. Give yourself room to be surprised. And it might be, you know, uh, that uh, you find the Gaudi uh, church in Barcelona to be as beautiful as you thought it would be. But you might find you don't like it, but the tapas bar around the corner strikes your fancy. So, like, don't be influenced by people telling you, this is beautiful. This is ugly. You you might find the beautiful ugly and the ugly beautiful. No expectations. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. On the flip side of that, what is one thing travelers should not do? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, uh, what's one thing they should not do? Um, be a jerk, I think. You should not be a jerk. Uh, you should not uh, treat the place like uh, it's an entitlement. I would go further and say you should not take. Tra uh, let me let me let me step away from the jerk thing. It's sort of a bigger picture, which is don't treat travel as an entitlement. And I think the pandemic sort of taught us this. You know, I was starting to think like, oh, I can just get on a plane, go to India, go to Bhutan, go to Costa Rica, boom, boom, boom. The pandemic reminded us that travel is not an entitlement. Um, it's it's not even a privilege. It's a gift. Mm -hmm. And so don't forget that travel is a gift. And don't be a jerk also. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> good life advice. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, what is one piece of advice you would give to yourself 10 years ago? Chill the fuck out. I mean, <laughs> just, just uh, you know, there's an old Indian expression, which may or may not be true. Everything will work out in the end. If, if it hasn't yeah. worked out, it must not be the end. I mean... Um, I, like I have I have uh, met everyone I needed to meet when I needed to meet them, uh, gone everywhere I need to go when I needed to go. Uh, the things that at the time, 10, 15 years ago, looked like really bad shit um, have not been. Um, so it's it's really chilling out. I'm sorry if I used bad language on your show. I don't know what okay. your policy is. All good. But OK, but just really chill out. Um, and that would apply to how I travel. That would apply to my writing life. Um, that would, uh, apply to this, uh, interviews like this podcast. I confess I did little preparation. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go with the flow. I think it's gone well. I chilled out. So yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. What, how did I do and what do I win? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you win, uh, I maybe Elliot and I coming to Iceland with you. Yeah. All <laughs> right. <laughs> There you go. All right. Yeah, no, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I know you're How about busy you guy. follow me on yeah. social media? There we go. That's oh, there we absolutely go. Easy. I, yeah, I already do. <laughs> so. what, are, what are you guys in social media? So the this is actually um, the Traveler's Blueprint is our Instagram tag. And then my personal one is uh, Chalupa Batman. <laughs> what is the it? League. Chalupa, Chalupa Batman is okay. my Instagram. Of yeah. course. Oh, that but, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 
And, um, well, uh, you guys, uh, this was great. You guys, I, I did not know what to expect. I had no expectations. I thought, if I may be honest, I thought the conversation would be fluffier, like more like where can we get the best airfare to uh, Dubrovnik or something? Ah, no. <laughs> like, no, see, that's no. not our podcast. I no, can no, say, no. And, yeah. uh, well, the title, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but I was uh, pleasantly surprised. You asked great questions and I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Awesome. Thank to you. Thank you, again. Thank you so much. Let you get back okay. to your book now. Uh, okay. Take care. Peace. Let me know when it drops. So I am pumped for this show today. Uh, that that's going to come out not today. I'm sorry. So it comes out the 18th. This is being released on the 8th, and the show with uh, Rain Wilson. I've seen so many um, advertisements for it. I saw uh, he was. I think he was targeted now. Yeah, I'm definitely targeted. But he was on a show. I, I don't know one of the morning shows talking about his time traveling the world and experiencing life like this. He actually said that one of the places he visited was L.A. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Los Angeles fares against. Some of the more, you know, quote unquote, like stereotypical happier countries in the Nordic like regions Reykjavik. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So or it'll Oslo. be really interesting to see how it all pairs up and what the ultimate conclusion is. So really looking forward to the show. And if I do have time and the ability, I plan on going on one of these tours one of these years. Uh, I don't think I can make it work talking to the wife uh, about this October because we have a lot planned. But I, I love the idea. And maybe you and I can do it. Yeah, I mean that'd be great, and I hope I hope his first one, the one for Iceland, is successful, so he can continue doing them. Um, but just remember, Bob, if and anybody listening, if you are living in a place that is unhappy, try not to compare yourself to a place that is happy. Yes, yes, comparison is the uh, thief of joy, as someone really smart said, and <laughs> that quote really get, that quote continues to get circulated through it the does. ages. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to support us in a non-financial way, the best way to do so is simply by liking posts, sharing uh, the podcast and things like that. As if Bob you likes do, to say, feed the algorithm. Feed the algorithm gods. So if you do want to support us in a financial way and you have the means to do so, you can buy us a coffee by clicking the link in the show notes of the podcast or on our Instagram page. Uh, we also offer merchandise and things like that. So check that out. Um, but regardless, thank you for listening to the podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week.